Hey folks, this is Abe Shreve. Welcome to the Choose Difficult Podcast. The path to success is not easy, and here we explore the stories of those who choose difficult and change the world they live in. Today we're going to talk about politics. Now just hold on, hold on. We're not going to talk about political stances or sides or who's done what on YouTube. Today's guest discovered very young that he really was interested in politics. He also discovered that he was interested in the legal field. Mike Ostermiller is a practicing attorney by trade, but he and his partner, Chris Kyler, have also founded one of the largest legislative lobbying firms in the state of Utah. And they are massive. They represent Apple, Uber, Pfizer. I mean, the list goes on and on. Mike is really accomplished in business, but he is so much more than that. He's a talented speaker. In fact, earlier last year, Mike and his daughter, Nicole, shared a stage with Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, Dan Reynolds, the lead singer of Imagine Dragons. We bring him in to speak to our coaches and our community all the time. Also, Mike is a philanthropist. He's truly one of the most giving people that I know, and I've known Mike for better than 20 years. This is going to be a real treat for you. And I invite you to pull out a notebook and prepare to ask yourself some questions and to learn from someone who is so gloriously transparent in a journey of incredible accomplishment. Now that said, it doesn't mean that there weren't difficult times. My parents were divorced when I was about in kindergarten and there were four kids. My older brother, who was second grade, I was in kindergarten. I had a younger brother who would have been about two and then a brand new baby sister when my parents were divorced. And my mom was like so many women of the time that she had dropped out of college when she got married to get pregnant and have babies because that's kind of how a lot of women did it back in those times. And so she realized she had to go back to school in order to be able to provide for her four little kids. So those were crazy years. My mom went back to college full time with four what I now know are babies and high maintenance babies at that, but four little kids at home. And we did that together as a family. Like that was, that was hard and challenging, but we, we all say we put her through college. And, um, I remember doing homework every night as a family. My mom would do her homework. We would all do our homework. I remember cleaning a bank in the middle of the night as a family to make ends meet. I, my brother and I did paper routes. And, and uh, so I think that, that instilled a lot of family unity and a lot of work ethic and just, you know what, a lot of grit because we just had to grind our teeth and just kind of get through it. But my mom ultimately became a, an elementary school teacher and she her emphasis was in children's literature which was awesome for me. You know, a lot of families do like swear jars where their parents make them put money in a jar whenever they use a bad word or whenever they cuss. And in our family, it was the opposite. And here's how the money jars worked. If you'd read a book or you'd memorize a poem or you'd memorize anything, didn't matter what, it could be a scripture, it could be a short story, it could be anything, or finish a book, you'd get money in your jar. And our money was pretty meager. It was, you were talking, you know, nickels and, and dimes. And if you used bad grammar, then my mom would take money out. But uh, we quickly realized that the way we could accumulate money was to keep reading things. And my mom loved that. And she loved children's books. And so I don't know, I don't know 
how or where they all came from, Abe, but it was, it was funny. We would finish a book and we would go back to my mom and we would say, I read this book and she would say, great, tell me about it. Tell me all about it. What did you learn? What did you love? What did you like about it? And she had read that book a hundred percent of the time and could talk to us about it. And she would talk to us about it, break it down, help us understand it. And she'd smile and get excited and we'd get excited. And then she'd say, okay, here's your next book. And she would hand us our next book to read. And I'm, I'm now 50 years old. And you know, I still do that. If you were to open my nightstand drawers right now, I have books one, two, three, four, five, and six in my, my top nightstand drawer and all the books I'm currently reading in my second drawer are all my next books. And I always have them in a row. So when I finish one, I put it away and I grab the next one out of my drawer and just start reading it. And that was a habit that my mom instilled in me, you know, when I was just a little kid, she taught me how important that was. It explains a little bit, some of Mike's incredible intelligence. He's able to quote, just almost anything for almost any conversation right off the top of his head because he's such a vivacious reader. And you can trace it back to this habit that his mom helped him develop. I've actually done something similar and I learned it from my business partner and mentor, Gary Keller, where I've paid my children to read books. I actually pay them to read certain books and write me a report. And people say, well, they should want to do it and do it on their own. But my experience has been that (laughs) kids often don't do what's really good for them. They do what's easier or what's more fun. So incentivizing kids young to learn and build that skill, I think is great, but it was tough. I asked Mike, what was hard? There was a lot that was hard. We watched our mom suffer. Those were tough years for her. You know, can you imagine being a single parent to four kids and carrying that burden. I, I'm, a, I'm a dad. I understand parenting is no picnic. It's hard under any circumstance. It's not easy. And we watched our mom labor with that burden all on her own. She never did remarry and really raised all four of us. And, you know, it was everything from making financial ends meet. She was, I mentioned a minute ago that she went back to school and then she became a a, uh, we always joke that she became a, a sixth grade school teacher. And in our minds, our financial troubles were over. <laughs> we were rich. We had made it because my mom was now pulling down. I don't know what teachers made back then, but $22,000 a year or something like that. But it was a challenge. You know, those were hard years. I think any single parent family faces their own challenges and they're emotional and financial and and mental and everything in between. And the reality of that situation was my mom was gone a lot. She was working, she was in college, she was trying to you know, make a living and trying to do all of those things. And so a lot of the day-to-day burden uh, it fell on me and my older brother to take care of our younger siblings and take care of ourselves. And that was not always easy. And looking back, we went through some, some, through some hard times, but some great times too. And, you know, it's one of those things that now that it's over, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I got a lot out of that. I learned a lot about determination and independence. And I always use the word grit. I I learned a lot of, I learned a lot about grit. And it's funny because my whole goal in my adult life has been to save my children from the types of challenges that I had because it was so hard. And yet sometimes 
I kind of wish my kids had some more of those challenges because of the lessons, life lessons that they teach you. Mike knew at a very young age that he wanted to be an attorney. It was just something he was really interested in. And it started at about the same time he realized that he also liked something about the political world and politics. It was about in junior high, high school, when I started to fall in love with politics. And I debated, I was on the debate team in high school, and so we really took a deep dive into lots of political issues, public policy types of issues, and I loved that. I loved thinking about it, I loved arguing about it, I loved analyzing it and debating it. And it was great for me back then because I knew everything back then. <laughs> you know, everything was so black and white and I thought I knew I had it all figured out. But I, I and so I knew I was going to go to law school and I knew I was going to be an attorney and I knew I loved politics. So I wanted to try maybe one day to figure out a way to marry those two, you know, to put chocolate into peanut butter I had no idea how I would do that. I didn't. I had no idea. And I, I don't know if it's just through, you know, divine providence or luck or or me just kind of looking for opportunities, but the fact that somehow we've been able to figure out how to marry those two and then to monetize that, that's pretty cool because those were my two childhood passions. If I'm being totally truthful with myself and with by extension anyone listening, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I mean, I love what I do. That's not a statement there. I just think it is so amazing that at such a young age, Mike found his passions and, and understood what he wanted to do. And he has followed that path and, and he's doing that. Following high school, Mike decided that he wanted to have a season of church service. He went for two years and spent time in Africa serving for his church. And when he came home and it was time to go to school and eventually law school, he needed a car. Back then, we used to look in the newspaper and he said he went to the newspaper and he found a car that looked interesting and he called the girl selling it. Her name is Christy. And Christy was selling her car because she had taken a job in Belgium to teach English. There was a guy there that she was interested in and she needed to sell her car for a little extra cash as she was leaving to go to Belgium. Mike went, bought the car and was driving that car and Things didn't work out with Pierre or whatever his name was in, in Belgium. And Mike and Christy started to communicate through letters. And of course, as the fairy tale would go, she got home, they started spending time together and, and now they have children. Mike speaks so highly of Christy and, and I've known them both, full disclosure, for a very long time, but I love the way and the reverence that he speaks about his wife. It's inspiring to me. Mike has said to me many times, and he reiterated it here, that her greatest gift in life is her unconditional love for her children. And it's part of what allows Mike to go out and leave the cave every day and go out and do battle for a living, knowing that the person on earth that may be the only other person that could love his children more than him is the one that's helping during those hours to help lead and guide them. And so Mike is now married, He's graduated from law school. He's got a job with a firm that he really enjoys, the people he's working for. And he has entered the world of the billable hour. I was practicing law in St. George. And honestly, I I didn't hate it. I, I liked, I, I was at the time when I left St. George, when I left the traditional practice of law, I had a, I was at a great law firm. And I had great law partners, great bosses. They were 
terrific human beings, really smart lawyers, really honorable guys. I, I mean, I the, I couldn't do any better than to work with them. But there were there was a couple things that happened. One is I was looking at it just long term, and I was thinking, man, I'm not. I was seeing lawyers in St. George that were handling the exact type of cases, the exact clients that I was handling as a brand new young attorney. And they had been practicing law for 25, 30, 35 years sometimes. And I, I remember looking at that thinking, I'm not sure this is the type of work that I want to do long-term. And I remember in particular one watershed day that, that really changed the course of my life. My wife called me up in the morning and at the time we had a car in the shop and so we were down to one car and I had taken the car and I was at, at the office and she called me and said, Mike, I'm having a rough morning and I guess our baby was sick and the kids were, you know, being kids and wearing her out as, as they do and she had had some stuff going on and she said, I just need to get out of the house for an hour and just clear my head. She said, for lunch today, can you just, I've got, I've arranged someone to watch the kids. Can you just come home and pick me up and take me out to lunch? And I am so embarrassed, really, even today, all these years later, I am so ashamed at my response. But in my head, I made a living by billing hours. That's what I did. So I build time like a lot of lawyers do in six minute, you know, increments. And so in my head, I defaulted to do to doing a calculation of how much this hour lunch would cost me in terms of opportunity cost because of lost billable time. And I'm so embarrassed, but that's just where I was. It was my visceral reaction was I thought, okay, if I leave my office, I drive home, I pick, pick up Christy, we go out to lunch, I drive her back. I come back here. I'm going to be gone probably two hours. And in my brain, I was like, I bill at X amount per hour. If I'm gone for two hours, that's going to cost me this. All of a sudden, that starts to feel like a really expensive lunch because I'm not billing that time. And then I have to find other time to make up for those billable hours. And, and anyway, I did all of that math in my head. And I said, you know, honey, I really can't. I really can't. And this was not a normal occurrence. She did not call me like this very often. This is this did not happen. And uh, I said, I, I don't I probably shouldn't. I have work I need to get done. I probably should stay here and just and just keep on working. And she said, Okay, I totally understand. I just thought I'd take a shot. And we hung up. And I hung up the phone and it was it was like I sat there and I couldn't think, I couldn't concentrate. And I, I literally, I said out loud to myself, this is what I've worked all of these years for. This is the life that I've carved out for myself. All of those late nights studying, all of that stress for college, all of everything that I've put in to get through law school, to pass the bar exam, to get to this point. And I've really managed to create a life where I can't leave my office to go pick up my wife who needs me, the most important person in my life. And I just, I had an epiphany and I thought, I am not doing this. 
I, I am not going to do this. This is a road I am not willing to go down. And I, as fast as I could, I picked up the phone. I called her back. I said, I am sorry. Of course I will come get you for lunch. And, and I did. And I picked her up. And we had a great lunch. And I went back to work. But it was kind of on that day where I just thought, I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know exactly the details yet. But I'm not doing this. I'm going to get out of the billable hour grind. And it wasn't very much after that that I ended up having the opportunity to come and partner with my law partner and come to work for the realtors and start doing what we're doing. And and because of that experience, one of the cardinal rules that I set with my law firm, with my business, is I will never take a client that is an hourly billable client. And in 20 years, I never have because of that. Because I just don't, I won't ever risk going back to that kind of a mindset. These are powerful moments in our lives. I know that for me, there was an experience and a moment where I realized that the way I was trading my time for money was diminishing the experience I was able to have with those that I love the most. And I think sometimes we think it's success or family or it's success or it's relationships or, or worse than that, we think that one day I'll make it up because we will have made all this money and then we can do things. And here's the truth. Life will come with different plans. I think it's amazing that Mike was able to see so clearly, so young in his relationship with Christy, that this wasn't gonna take him where he wanted them to go. It's something worth paying attention to. And, And these are the moments I invite you to move from listener to participant and take a look at your own life. You know, are you trading time for money in the hopes that one day when you think you have enough, then you'll make up the time with those you love? Because very seldom does that scenario ever play out. So Mike is off. He has a new partner. They're starting a new venture. And I had to ask him, what was that like? We were like, I think most entrepreneurs, most people that were new in the business, man, we had lots of energy and uh, we were gung-ho we were ready to go and we didn't know anything really, especially about running a business. We knew about the law. We knew about the political process. We knew about the legislative process. We knew the nuts and bolts of those things. We didn't know anything about successful entrepreneurship. We didn't know a thing about building a business or running a business. Okay. We didn't. And part of that was we didn't know what we didn't know. And part of that was on some degree, we were cognizant of the fact that that wasn't really a strength of ours, you know, that we had never really done that and had that much experience with that. And so we got together and we said, okay, how do we, how do we do this? And we didn't know anything about marketing and advertising and, and we didn't really want to spend money on marketing and advertising. And so we, we just said, okay, here's what's going to happen. As we have opportunities to get new clients, we're going to take those opportunities. And then what we're going to do is we are going to work as hard as we can possibly work and we are going to achieve results for our clients, Period. And that by itself, we believe is going to bring more clients. We are just going to produce results because we can do that. And we can do that as well as anybody. And the rest of it, we're just going to let it fall, you know, fall wherever it would fall. And so we went into it thinking three things. One is we want to produce results. Number two is we want to be selective in terms of who our clients are. We want to take clients on that 
are harmonious in their interest with our other clients that would be good long-term kind of strategic. We don't want to slash and burn. We don't want to take clients on where we're going to go, you know, irreparably damage relationships with with people. And we're not going to take any clients on that violate our own personal ethical or moral standards. And, you know, we had to spend some time figuring out what is that exactly and where does that come from and why. But we sort of made a list with ourselves and said, these are the types of clients we're not willing to take. And then the third objective that we had, and it was really the only other guiding principle that we had from the beginning was we said, this is a combative, sometimes hostile, warfare-like industry. It's Sometimes it's a zero-sum game. At least it's viewed that way. And it's and often viewed as us versus them. And we said, that's fine. We're willing to mix it up. We're willing to be zealous advocates for our clients. And we're willing to passionately plead for their cause. But what we are not willing to do is treat people without dignity and respect. We are going to treat everybody with dignity and we're going to be respectful. And that was important because I always hadn't been that. When I was a young litigator, I was a jerk sometimes. I was aggressive and overly aggressive and I didn't like that. And so when we got together, we said, we're going to do this. We're going to advocate, but we are not, we're going to treat people with respect. And I think one of our greatest sources of pride over the years is we have so many clients that started out on the opposite side of us on issues. And when those issues resolved, those client, those parties, those companies that we were quote fighting with came to us and wanted to hire us. And we really felt like that was because we they saw us working hard and they saw that we were competent. But I think mostly it's because we treated them decently. And so that was really all we knew, Abe, were those three things. And just client by client, we just started to slowly grow over time. And we just, just as opportunities would come up, we would, we would take them and we would just do our best. Mike has shared with us that one of the things that they are the most proud of is the number of clients that have hired them that met them on the opposite side. These were people that hired lobbyists and lawyers to fight essentially against what Mike and Chris were doing for their client. And it was through that process and being exposed to these amazing and talented attorneys and lobbyists, people of high moral standards, people that aren't willing to treat others with disrespect. This is the reason that so many have hired them. Now, listen, don't believe for a minute that there weren't really tense issues. Of course, in an environment where you do battle for a living, there's going to be moments, right, that they get heated. And Mike has a story that is one of my favorites. They were working with a large client to pass a certain type of legislation. And there were some companies inside the state of Utah that were really opposed to that. They perceived that particular legislation as something that would be adversarial to their business pursuits. And it got heated. There were some businesses in Utah, one in particular, who hated that idea. 
And so they hired lobbyists and they came to the legislature and they were arguing against the bill that we were trying to pass on behalf of our clients. And we had one meeting that was particularly heated. It revved in a hurry. And, and you know, there was a lot at stake, I think, for, for their, at least they thought, and for their business, if that were to pass. And we were doing our best for our clients. And so there were some raised voices and there were some accusations of improper conduct that were made. And without getting into those details, I tried as calmly as I could in that meeting to say, you don't get to come and start throwing out meritless, spurious, personal accusations, accusing people of illegal conduct up here. Like that doesn't work. Argue the merits of your position and I'll argue the merits of my position. And I am not going to let this get personal, but I'm not going to let you make this personal and accuse me of something. And well, the individual that I said that to was the president and CEO of a large company in the state of Utah. I don't want to say which one because I don't want to embarrass them or him, but he didn't like it. And so the meeting ended and he came to me in the hallway and he got in my face and said, hey, I've got a problem with you and I would like to go outside and settle it. And I said, oh, like you want to go talk about, you want to go talk about it? You want to go talk about the issue? And he said, no, I don't want to talk. I want to go outside and I want to settle with settle this with you. And I think he actually used the term man to man. And I, I remember it, it, it dawned on me, oh, he actually wants to fight. Like he, he wants to have a fight. And so I looked at him and I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you out by the flagpole as soon as we're done with work, but you got to hurry and meet me there because my mom's coming to pick me up from work. So we got to get this settled before my mom comes. And he did not like that. I was trying to make a joke and lighten the situation. And he came at me and it was physical. And luckily there were people there and they kind of pulled us apart and they broke us apart. And, uh, and it, it, but the, the funniest part of that whole story was one of the legislators that was involved came to me afterwards and said, man, I thought you were smart you're not, you're the dumbest person I've ever known. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know how much money that guy is worth? All you had to do is just stick your chin up at him and say, okay, I'll go outside with you. But I heard you punch like a little girl and that would have been it. He said he would hit you one time and you would never have had to worry about money ever again. So we had a good laugh over that. And that was a lot of years ago. But, but you know, what's funny is that that person, that company and that person we ended up working together on a couple of issues years later, and we got along just fine. And I don't ever see him anymore, but I see his attorney who was there, who helped break us up, who was in that meeting. I see him. We cross paths fairly regularly, and we've never had a problem. We've always gotten along just fine since then. But Mike will tell you that he's a lover, not a fighter, and there's a part of that that's true. But Mike can be a little imposing. He's probably six one, and he's an amateur bodybuilder. He's an athlete. Like he can look imposing, but he just has to start talking. And when he starts talking, he can't help but get to the point that he's bringing people together. So naturally, I had to ask him about his partnership with Chris. And what is it about the two of you that works? My experience as a business coach, now over 10,000 coaching calls with clients that are partners, people that have hired leadership teams, executives, kind of the whole gamut. My experience is that partnerships, when they work well, are absolutely amazing. 
And in every other instance, they're horrible. In fact, one of my most valued mentors once told me, the only truth that exists in a partnership is that one day it will break up. Now, I don't entirely know that I agree with that now that I'm 20 years after that statement. But I did ask Mike, what is it about your partnership that works? When I originally decided, okay, I want to, we were going to start this law firm and we're going to try to build a business. For me, the single most important thing was who I do that with. That was the most important because I just thought everything else will take care of itself, right? Like all of the other stuff, that'll sort itself out. If I can have a business partner that I trust and who trusts me and that I see the world kind of in a similar way and that I love and that can love me and that is willing to jump in the trenches with me and be a friend and a support, man, that is all I can ask for. You know, like if, if I get that, if I have that, everything else will take care of itself. And so the opportunity to partner with Chris, who's still my partner, was, was all of that. And that was, that was 20 years ago. And we, were, we became business partners, law partners then, and we still are today and have continued over two decades. We've never had a falling out. We've never had what I could consider a significant argument. You know, we've, we've figured stuff out together over the years. There's never, in 20 years, there's never been a breach of trust from either one of us. There's never been a reason for him not to trust me and me not to trust him and for me not to want to be there for him and him not to want to be there for me. And man, that's, you know, that's going through a lot of stuff in life illnesses and injuries and, you know, life, just life stuff, life issues that we've kind of gone through together. And there's been times, days, hours, months, years, where he has been at the top of his game and I haven't. And there's been times when I've been at the top of my game and, and he hasn't. And there's hopefully been some times when we've both been at the same time, you know, but we've been able to be there, I think, for each other in a really meaningful way for a long time. I just want to reiterate here that these guys are hard charging sprinters that are representing Apple, Uber, Pfizer, on and on and on. A lot of times in my experience, when, when people partner up, they'll often do that not because they believe that somebody has a, a skill set they don't possess. That's the knowledge we gain after the partnership. Or down the road when we've had a partnership that hasn't worked out. Now we, now we know what we want that we didn't know before. Oftentimes we partner because it feels easier. It feels less lonely on the front line. Our insecurities of not knowing how to do the business or how to get it going, those are satiated somewhat by not being alone and bringing in someone. And oftentimes friends will partner. Or oftentimes you'll have people partner that they work well together, but they're just not a natural fit together. And... One of the things as I've got to spend time with both Mike and Chris that I think is important is that they are relentlessly dedicated to an outcome for their clients and they're completely competitive in terms of not wanting to let the other partner down. Just listen to that for a moment. They're competitive about not wanting to let the other down. You know, that's really important. They do great work and their clients appreciate it. So how do you grow a business that you're the primary service provider?
we watched our law firm grow over the years and we didn't have like an overnight explosion like some companies have to deal with. The nature of our business doesn't really lend itself to that. But organically, just kind of by producing results, we grew over time. And every business, I think, struggles to transition. They struggle to deal with, okay, how do we effectively grow? That is a common problem, I think, for every small business, and, and it is for ours. But I think ours is particularly nuanced and maybe a little bit more tricky to figure out growth than others. Because if you, if you break it down, you think, what's the, the normal equation for growth is, okay, when you grow to the point where you no longer have the bandwidth to be able to do everything that you're trying to do, okay, now, number one, you've earned the right to get help. And number two, now you leverage, right? You leverage that growth. And then you can start to make money based on what other people do. And, and you, you transition into a growth cycle. Well, the tricky part for us is that our clients hire us not because of a, of a product necessarily that we're selling that anybody can sell and not because of legal work that you can teach someone how to do, you know, uh, our clients hire us because of two things. One is a really, really unique set of specialized knowledge and skills. You know, we have a really rare knowledge of the inside political legislative process in the state of Utah. And uh, at a level that, you know, 99% of the people don't have because we've been doing this for so long, right? And, and so I think they hire us for that. And that's really hard to just download that knowledge to, to somebody else. But the other reason they hire us is because of relationships. We've spent the better part of two decades working really hard to build relationships of trust with key decision makers and elected officials. And that is not an easy thing to do. And we've built that by being honest, and we've built that by years of straight shooting, honest talk, candor, by providing reliable, good, solid, unbiased information. And if, if you do that, over time, eventually you get a reputation for somebody that, oh, I can, when he comes to me and brings me a piece of information or makes an argument, I may not agree with his argument, but I can trust him. I believe he's being honest. I believe he's telling me what, I, what I'm asking. I believe he's giving me good information. So clients come to us because we have that relationship with elected officials, and I think we have that reputation. I don't think. I know we have that reputation. We've earned it over a long period of really trying hard to, to do that. So how do you leverage that? How do you grow that? When a client comes to, to us and says, I want to hire you because of that, how do I then say, okay, meet my associate, who they've never heard of, who may not have that same level of expertise and who may not have those same relationships. So it, we really struggled. And I don't know when it happened. I can't go back to the day or the month, but at some point in time, I realized, man, we're in trouble here because you can get to a point where you have more work or demands than you're able to really do. And we did not want to get to that point because then we would feel like we're not providing the same level of dedicated, excellent service to our clients that we wanted to do, that we always had. And so we thought, okay, now what? 
And that was has been and is a really hard thing for us to figure out. Do, does this mean we stop taking new clients? That doesn't seem like that's a sustainable business model because we want to keep doing this for, for a long time. Does it mean we hire somebody? Well, if, if it does, how and whom do we hire and what skills do we look for and how do we do that? And do we need to change the relationship dynamic between us and our clients? And what does that look like? So we, we got to a point where we just said, we know we have to do something. We don't know what to do. We're not sure of the right thing to do. And thankfully, I have a really, really good friend named Abe Shreve who has, uh, has built a career based on helping businesses and helping other coaches who help businesses transition exactly through that. So Abe, you know this. I called you and said, "Hey, we need to, we need you. I need you, man. I need you to to come help us figure this out, coach us through this. I need you to help mentor us through this and and take us on a on a process where we can find solutions that are going to help us long term." One of the greatest challenges of doing a podcast like this for me and producer Jake, you get to hear my voice, but he's. He's spinning the discs behind the scenes. One of the greatest challenges is these incredible guests like Mike share so much gold. Our job is to narrow down sometimes a two hour interview to a time that we think you'll stay with us. And often we're still long. We could have talked to Mike for another couple hours. We could have shared on this podcast more of his story. It's just, I really have learned from Mike the power of resilience and just leaning into your challenges and pure grit. And I also admire so greatly his self-awareness. Consider the story where he realized, I'm not going to trade time for my wife for money. It's easy for people to say those things. It's inspiring to me when people do that. And so to me, Mike is, is a great example of someone who understands he's on a journey and he's going to continue to grow and he's going to scale and he's going to do it with others and he's going to do it with respect and performance. Those go together. Just absolutely grateful for Mike and the time that he spent with us. I hope you got as much as I did. Well, there you have it, folks. If you're a business leader and you'd like to know what hiring a coach would look like for you and your organization, head over to mymapscoach.com and let's set up a meeting. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, please subscribe and consider going and leaving us a review. We read them all. They mean a lot to us. You don't think they would, but they do. I hope you've enjoyed our time together, and I hope you'll join us next time as we continue to explore the stories of extraordinary individuals who choose difficult. Mm -hmm.